Hello, friends, and welcome to Robcast 52. And uh, this one is an interview. My friend Opal Tometi stopped by the house recently, and Opal is uh, the founder of Black Lives Matter. And as you will see, she is a uh, such an inspiring human being. And we had this conversation, and I recorded it because I was thinking of you and thinking you all would want to meet her as well and, and hear what she's up to and where she's coming from. And so uh, in a minute, I'm just going to roll that interview. But I just wanted to say a thousand thanks to all of you. Um, last week, I released my new novel and um, for free. I'm giving you my new book. It's called um, Millones Cajones. And you can get it at robbell.com. And what makes me laugh, and obviously, if you're listen, if you hear the title and you aren't already laughing, you know what I mean. But what really moves me is how many of you were so kind and supportive, but also said that you laughed really hard reading it. And that is just about the greatest thing ever. The thought that um, some of you were laughing out loud on airplanes and such is just. <laughs> It's just the best. So once again, the new novel, uh, Millones Cojones, you can download it from for free at robbell.com. And uh, that's my gift to you. And then uh, the Everything is Spiritual filming is actually sold out. So there aren't any tickets for that, but there are some tickets for my December 21st Christmas show at Largo, which, oh, I got some stuff planned. Um I'm having so much fun putting it together. And then the um, I'm doing three two-day events at the Viper Room here in Los Angeles in January. One for people in business, so healthcare, law, entrepreneurs, etc. And then one for people in spiritual leadership. And then one about creative process, like communicating, writing, crafting messages, that sort of thing. And there are still some spots for those three events here in January. So uh, that's what's going on. And uh, now... I'd love for you to meet my friend, Opal. <laughs> okay, everybody, welcome to another Robcast. I have been so excited about this Robcast for so long because Opal Tometi is with me. Hi, Opal, thanks for coming. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining me at my dining room table. Opal's one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, and one of the things that so has inspired me about the Black Lives Matter movement, what do you, we call it a movement? Yes, yeah, it's, it's completely a movement. We're calling it that. We're also calling it the Movement for Black Lives, which involves many other organizations right, across right. the country. So, yeah. so big and massive and wide. And one of the things I'm most inspired by is just whenever there's injustice, suffering, abuse, and in the face of that, people rise up and respond with beauty, love, solidarity. You know what I mean? It's something in our world, there's like these, it can crush you or it can produce something new. And so everybody, one of the reasons why I've just been so fascinated with what Opal and her, and her, and her crew are up to is in the face of, I don't know about you, but every time I hear about an unarmed American being shot by a police officer, I grieve for that person, for their family, for a police officer in a system that's that sort of jacked up there's like it's just a mess all the way around right. and the fact that in the face of that you and many others have organized you've found language and ways to march and make change is just so i got a thousand questions 
Awesome. I mean, like, bring it. But you, but you said it right. Like, it's beautiful. It's, it's amazing. We've seen so many courageous people from all walks of life rise up at a very, very critical point in our history. And so I'm just proud and happy and, and privileged to walk alongside so many beautiful people who are willing to put some skin in the game yes. and transform our yes. world. Okay, so let's go way back. Where'd you grow up? So I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. Did you really? What part? <laughs> So um, central Phoenix sure. as well as northwest Phoenix. My parents are Nigerian immigrants, and so I grew up with a really amazing like bunch of Nigerian immigrants in the center of Phoenix. Is there um, like a community? There's a community. There's quite. A, I felt like it was a really large community. I was really proud of our our folks, and we had all sorts of really cool things in our own little traditions in the midst of a. Uh, sprawling metropolis <laughs> and was it a was it just nigerian was it religious was it just a cultural um yeah so my parents actually moved to phoenix in particular because they knew of a ministry actually like a christian ministry that they heard about while they were young believers back in nigeria oh and, interesting yeah and so and when, that's what drew them there that's what drew them there so they knew that they'd have other people who they could kind of rely on because it's not easy you know when you're when you're migrating from like literally another continent. Right. Um, trying to How make old are they? Way. Early 20s? They were in their 20s. They're mid 20s. And this is classic just go to America for a better life. Go to America for a better life. Try to get to school. Try and make a better living so that your children can have. And what um, was what it like need. in Nigeria? And for them, um, I mean, things were changing. So there wasn't the economy that would actually provide them with a job and a, a way to have a living that they would be dignified and be able to provide for their kids. And so they thought, hey, you know, we're going to go to school in the U.S. and we're going to see what we can make of it. And in the process of all of that, found themselves actually quite poor in Phoenix. It's, it's not that easy, you know, yeah. you, you would like it to be. And I think any parent is, mm -hmm. you know, in the process of always trying to make things better, make things better. But they found themselves um, navigating really grueling system and the immigration system, the system in which, you know, trying to find a job and... Um, you know, almost going bankrupt when we got into a car accident when I was a kid. Just a you know, number of different things. But And you remember all that? I remember all of that. I remember a lot. I remember my dad being racially profiled countless times in our beat up. It was like this ugly mustard colored Mercedes Benz. Um, but he was undocumented at the time. And so wow. being profiled time and time again... Uh, was and was that just getting like pulled over? Just getting pulled over. And you're in the back seat. Driving while black. So I was in the back seat and driving he, while black. Driving while black. <laughs> you get pulled over for driving while black. And he eventually got rid of that car because it was too conspicuous, right? He was he was getting profiled way too much. And so he got a beat up old truck that he drives still to this day and he doesn't get pulled over as much and that was you know those are the kinds of choices that folks have to make from time to time in order to survive and as an undocumented person you know an immigrant who's undocumented you might end up in immigration detention you might end up deported and having kids who are U.S. citizens and you know, you might be over there and your kids are over here they just didn't want to deal with it so he would rather and the whole thing yeah. Your kids, their education, your job, your fa it's all, you get pulled over by the wrong person at the wrong time, and everything unravels. That's right. And you grow up with that sort of safe, secure family, and yet it's also like hanging by a thread in some ways. That's right. 
Wow. Okay. So then where did you go to school? So I went to school. So I went to elementary school in, in Phoenix, also mm-hmm. middle school, high school. Went to Shadow Mountain High School and um, went to University of Arizona in Tucson. And so I kind of came of age in the U.S.-Mexico desert border region and oh. got really active as a result of just growing up there, right? Kind of getting... And, and specifically, how'd you get active? So um, <laughs> I have a really interesting kind of experience. So I, I you know, flash back, you know, even, even before my kind of college days, I always had friends who were from all walks of life. So I grew up with a lot of other immigrant kids. So my best friend was from Jordan. My other one was from Sri Lanka. The other one was from Germany. Like we always kind of flocked <laughs> to mm-hmm, one another. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I remember going over to one of my best friend Zane's homes and they had like goats and chickens and she like, like it was like typical, <laughs> like yeah. amazing, like yeah, immigrant yeah. trying to like make home wherever you are, right? And this is familiar. And so I remember like being there. So anyway, I like always kind of grew up like that, right? And I always kind of identified in those like really kind of multiracial, yeah. multicultural yeah. spaces. Um, and same thing kind of in, in college. Um, but the difference was in college, I was in I was plugged into the Mexican community, right? Because that was I was in Tucson, and so like the large majority of the the population down there are from, you know, different parts of Mexico, and so I quickly. Uh, became aware of the human rights crisis that was actually happening on the U.S.-Mexico border region. And I witnessed people with blisters on their feet. Um, I knew that there were people who were crossing, making just a really, to me, it was like a really courageous journey trying to make a better living for for themselves and for their kids and maybe even send money back home to an old mom or, or, you know. And the injustice was there wasn't a pathway to do that legally that honored the dignity of the person the injustice was what would happen if somebody got caught like what was how would you yeah, describe I mean, to me the injustice was like that he had to do that in the first place yeah right? yeah so yeah. like there are these laws and policies and i think about and i don't want to get too like jargony or anything but go, you know th- like i think about the north american <laughs> free trade agreement right so it's this uh, this is a trade policy that in its essence displaced like literally six million farm workers mm-hmm. in rural parts of, of, of Mexico. And so displacing them because they didn't have the um, wherewithal and they didn't have the kinds of subsidies that farmers have here and so on to produce the corn that they're so used to like producing at the level that they're able to produce. And so they're no longer able to make a living in Mexico. So, so they're, they're on their feet, tr- trying, walking, trying to find a new life somewhere. Literally. And they come across the border. So they come across the border. So first of all, the fact that they have to do that to me is an injustice, yes. right? So yeah. foreign policy, bad, right? Bad policy. Um, and the fact that they come across the border and they are oftentimes encountering border patrol or other coyotes or other, you know, other folks along that path that are then prone to abusing them, prone to, um, you know, locking them up and and so on. And then some of them are also quite literally dying in the desert. So I knew hundreds of people, you know, got involved and like got all the data and all of that. And hundreds of people were dying each year in the desert. And to me, that was... I mean, that was a, that's a crisis. It's a humanitarian crisis. Yes. And so there's the crisis at the border, but then there's the policy that created the situation south of the border that moved people towards the border. So it's like way bigger than just... 
So it's look, yeah, yeah, got it. So it's, I mean, and it's the policy across the border, but it's also the policy here. So displacing yes. U.S.-born workers, sending yeah. their jobs overseas, and then you have more people who are trying to make a living here. So it's it's a relationship, right? There's like this. It's all interconnected. All it's like all a giant web. So you're in college and you are starting to organize. You're starting. Yeah. And then where do you, and then what so, happens? So I'm seeing this, but at the same time, I'm also hearing all this anti-immigrant rhetoric in the news. So this is like, you know, I don't know, oh, six, oh, four, like this, this mm-hmm. time period, right? Um, election time as well. So you're hearing all, you know, all the politicians trying to vie for... We're going to talk about the Republican candidates in a moment, but <laughs> okay. I'm just going to warn you. Okay, I got a lot of questions for you, but uh-huh. okay. So then what? Yeah. So, so I'm hearing all this anti-immigrant nonsense in, in the news and, and everywhere else. And I'm also quite literally seeing videotape of border patrol agents slashing bottles of water that were left in the desert for folks who are crossing. And so I'm seeing all of this. I'm also hearing these crazy calls for um, what was known at the time as Minutemen. So basically vigilantes, people who don't have that much else to do. So they're, they're coming to the border with their guns in arm and they're waiting for people as they are crossing the border. To take them out. To take them out, to apprehend them, to make sure that you know they don't cross into the U.S. illegally, quote unquote, um, and so on. And so I, I'm quite literally witnessing like armed people who are fearful of the U.S. being overtaken by these migrants, right? Um, refugees of the economy, as I like to see it. Um, and then there are people like me who's like a student in college. And so what I did with some of my friends is I volunteered with the ACLU and I was like a, a legal observer for a while. So after class, I'd go down to the desert and listen in on walkie talkies and wear a bright orange vest so we wouldn't get shot or anything. And um, just kind of hear people just frantic, frantic. And there would be barely anybody coming across. <laughs> there would be barely anybody, but they were just like, in this frenzy. I've got a gun. And like javelina like in the bushes. (laughs) And they're like, oh my God, you know, I think I heard one. It's like a javelina. It's like a coyote. It's not, it's not anything. So you're out in the desert in an orange vest. Yeah. So I'm out in In your free time as a college student. Yeah. My free time as a college student. (laughs) And and then, you know, and then beyond that, I, I, I really got caught up in just like the anti-immigrant rhetoric. And so I, started my first kind of online <laughs> organizing campaign where I was telling my um, friends and, and family to call Channel 3 News and um, ask them to stop using the term illegal as a way to refer to immigrants just because I thought it was just so pejorative, really dehumanizing. It didn't really allow for a, a broader or more comprehensive yeah, yeah, yeah. way to even think and talk about people. and It, it just didn't seem right. And so... I was, you know, involved in things like that and protests and rallies and, you know, door knocking. And, and then tell me about the origins of Black Lives Matter. Oof. So, yeah. So you leave college. Leave Where college. do you go? Where do you go? Leave college, go back to Phoenix, um, work for a few years doing odds and ends. And I uh, then have um, an opportunity to work for the organization that I'm the director of now called the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, the nation's only immigrant rights group for black people. So African-Americans as well as black immigrants from Africa, the Caribbean, and so on. 
Um, we do a lot of education and advocacy. And so that's what I started doing. Um, but in the midst of that, you know, I was very, very aware of the fact that this kind of growing um, concern around police brutality was bubbling up, of course. Um, definitely heard about many, many stories even before Trayvon Martin, before um, Michael Brown, um, you know, there's Rodney King, there's Amadou Diallo, there's Sean Bell, there's Oscar Grant, there's just like countless, those are like the high profile, but there were there were many, many more, yeah. right? So there's a statistic now that says every 28 hours, an unarmed black person, um, male and female, um, are killed by either a police officer, a vigilante, or a security guard. Whoa. Okay, so it seems lately to have increased, but it's not, it's always been there. Is it just the presence of cell phone video and yeah. YouTube? I think there's something about the technology that we are able to We're aware it. of it. Yeah, we're able but, to. But the numbers aren't bigger than they used to be. Not necessarily. So it, it's only maybe there's been like a slight uptick in recent years, but it's pretty much stayed steady for the past five, six years or so, if not longer. Um, and it's just the awareness is there, the growing awareness and then the use of technology to share and, and share also, all to, this. also to just quite literally mobilize people to stop mm -hmm. this. So you're working, so you have that job. Yeah. And then what happens that Black Lives Matter sort yeah. of takes on a, its own life of its own? So what happens is Trayvon Martin is murdered mm -hmm. by George Zimmerman in mm -hmm. Florida. Mm -hmm. And... <sighs> I mean, where were we, you when you first heard about it? I was living in New York, so mm -hmm. I had moved to Brooklyn, New York. Um, I heard about it there, and you're watching the news online. I'm, Someone emails I'm you a clip. I'm watching the news actually. I'm watching the news, and then more than that, I'm watching the news and hearing that okay, Trayvon Martin's parents really had to organize their community, organize. Um, different folks in order to get George Zimmerman to actually have a trial. So like there was all of this work to even get the visibility around his case, right? Um, and so I, I'm really watching for what's gonna happen to George Zimmerman. Uh, we know historically, sometimes these cases don't come in our, you know, quote unquote favor. Um, there's not a guilty verdict, but you know, what's gonna happen with George Zimmerman? And essentially, you know, fast forward, George Zimmerman is acquitted um, of the murder. We all kind of watched it. Um, in many ways, this was like a collective trauma that we're all experiencing because despite the mountains of evidence, despite the testimonies and so on, what we see is a young 17-year-old boy who was stalked in his own community mm -hmm. and murdered. We see him put on trial for his own murder. Like They, they basically bring up all this stuff about who he is and is he sagging his pants? Is he smoking weed? Is he, you know, all of these things to really demonize um, this young teenager. And um, and then you see his murderer get off scot-free. And um, I heard about the verdict, actually. I was just walked, walking out of a film screening. So I was watching uh, a movie called Fruitvale Station. Oh, yeah. Which is the story of, you know, Oscar Grant. Um, once again, um, young black man, murdered on New Year's Eve, right? New Year's, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day by Oakland police officer, right? And um, I just watched that, was feeling exceptionally raw, right? You see something mm -hmm. like that, you see his life kind of on film, on the big screen. And 
I walked out of the movie theater and I remember looking at my cell phone and getting all, like a barrage of text messages and seeing all these tweets. And they're like, George Zimmerman is acquitted. Can you believe this is happening? Oh my God. You know, like people are just upset. They're like upset, right, rightly so, right? Um, and I remember just like freezing almost for a moment. Like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. Like, I can't believe this is happening. And you know, almost immediately, I thought about my own baby brother, who was 14 at the time, right? This is my own little brother. And I was thinking about him and, like, how this story, like, everybody knew this story, right? Like, nobody was going to escape the story of young Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman being acquitted. Like, this has gone down in history. Like, it's huge. And so I was just kind of struck by the fact that this was going to be the narrative that was going to shape my brother's generation, and it was going wow yeah like it's that overwhelming it was that okay what doesn't and forgive me for ignorance so just set me straight what doesn't the white community understand about how the black community hears about those stories you know what i mean you Mm. feel it at some level it's it happens to him but it happens it happened to you do you, you know what i mean right what is is it that the white community just, well, that, you know, that just happens. It was probably a confusing, probably a little misunderstanding. But, but all of my African, African-American friends, black friends are like, no, no, you don't understand. It's like year after year after year. It's being pulled over. It's being profiled. It's walking into a store and the clerks all just stiffen a little bit. Right. It's, it's not just that, although that is heartbreaking. It's, this is the 99th time in the past 10 months that I've bumped up against this. Is that the... the I mean, that's, it's the everydayness of it, right? The everydayness, the way in which um, racism is pervasive. So you might experience kind of like the interpersonal, some of the you know, things that you described were, you know, the everyday kind of interactions. But I think what we're even more concerned about because that's you know that's bullshit like it's horrible that's so you've grown up you've grown up what would be something that you have experienced that that uh people would be like no way that really happened and i'm sure you've had things where you're like oh yeah it happens all the time what's something that happened that has happened to you on a number of occasions that that um s- somebody white would be like no that doesn't really happen. You'd be like, no, seriously, yeah, it's happened like 19 times. You know <laughs> well, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, these days there's just there's just so much I could pull yeah, from. Yeah, give, give me an example. So from from everything from like, you know, growing up being accused of stealing and like being kicked out of a store prematurely and like yeah, to um, you know just to being followed around to being pulled over. Um, but I mean, these days I'm uh, regarded as or you know the. Fox News and some other pundits there are talking about me leading a hate group, and the folks who know me are like, a "Hate group? Like, have you ever?" Well, you have a, you that? you have an exuberance and joy about you. I have yeah. que- I have yeah. other questions about like forgiveness in a moment because yeah. you have seen lots of pain and suffering up yeah. front, and yet you are clearly you have a sort of joy spilling out. So you, yeah. somewhere in there, there's some progress, some forgiveness, or some muscles you built up mm-hmm. to forgive, so that you're not a bitter, angry. I mean, is it, where did you where did that come from? <laughs> so I think what you're talking about is like resilience, right? Yes. Just like various practices and resilience, and um, I mean, there, I think there's a lot I could I could share about that. But honestly, the way in which 
I view the world and I, the way in which I even relate to folks like even in my family like the fact I look at my brother you know I mentioned my, my my youngest brother in particular who inspired me to to start Black Lives Matter and I look at him and the love that I have for mm-hmm. him and, and that's like what's driving me the love that I have for oh, to create for, a better world for him yeah I mean for him for myself for my uncle and aunties and, and folks who um, I care dearly about and the fact is that they remind me of, of, of that. Like, that's what brings me joy. And so, you know, I look at my, my family, I look at, you know, I dig into my own so faith So where some people and, would just... Okay, tell me about faith practices. So um, so I'm a believer. I, you know, I believe in Jesus as a revolutionary, you know, person. Nice. <laughs> a revolutionary uh, person. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so for me, like that's my grounding, right? Mm-hmm. My dad is actually a pastor in, in Phoenix and oh, him wow. and his, his buddies started a church a few years back and um, a lot of like African immigrants and even some like Indian and it's a really, really cool church um, in South Phoenix. And so that's like, that's my background. That's a mm-hmm. lot of, of what informs me, but really just looking at the scripture, looking at the ways in which people um, who historically and even presently have been marginalized still find their their worth, still know yes. that they have, yeah. um, they're, they're dignified human beings. And that despite what this world may say, there's, you know, there's something greater that's always pointing to the fact that like, no, you belong here. Like mm-hmm. you're you're endowed with these gifts. You're endowed with this. Like you're supposed to be here, and and this profound sense uh, of love and and belonging. And so, that to me is like what also you know drives me and grounds me in in this work. Okay, yeah. so so for you, so there as Eric Gardner was the couldn't breathe right the one that one just he's like on the sidewalk I can't breathe I can't breathe and he's killed yeah and Trayvon Martin for you if it just becomes about those moments of cruelty and death then you just become consumed with the next time that's going to happen and that just but for you the engine is no no no, this is about creating a better world for the people I love this is about that's the engine of the whole thing that's it this is this is about like my community and their ability to love and live and thrive and and so what can I do to to ensure that? So part of the work is this like really courageous, like you're out in the streets, you're engaged in really creative, like nonviolent civil disobedience, similar to the tradition of Gandhi, Martin Luther King, yeah. those who came before us. Third way. Right, like completely. Um, and then the other side of it though is like having space for healing. So a lot of folks don't know, but we have nearly 30 Black Lives Matter chapters across the country and across the world. And in those spaces, we're oftentimes holding space to just like heal, to discuss, to like do like acupuncture and like to chant and like to oh, engage yeah. in practices that also affirm who it is that we are. Um, while you know, before we go out and you know do whatever. Yes, we because do. lots of activists are a mess. Yeah. Their interior lives are just complete chaos. They're out changing the world, but their own lives are fractured and broken. I mean, the number of people I've seen who are out trying to change the world, but their own sort of interiors are just in shambles. They're bitter. And, and so for you, there's like this external go out into the street and in a nonviolent, creative way, make some noise, right. raise a holy ruckus, as I like to say. Holy but ruckus. then there's this other dimension to it, which is building the interior resources to forgive 
to love, to ground, to center yourself. Right. Fantastic. Okay, now. Yeah. Um, the Republican debates, there have been two of them. And we're about to have a Democrat, but let's talk about the Republican debates. Not to, not yes. to make you political or whatever, but just <laughs> here's, when they talk about immigration, mm-hmm. when you hear immigration, oh what, are you at home just like, are you, yeah. <laughs> are you just, do you just want to throw well, your remote like, at the it's screen? It's like deja vu though, right? It's deja yes, vu. Yes, because I noticed that earlier, this is, you're like 10 years into this. Yeah, I'm 10 years into this. And so literally I was a student, and my, my friend was reminding me the other day, I was a student at the University of Arizona hearing quite literally the same rhetoric. I ended up graduating early because I was so sick and tired of hearing the same rhetoric. And I was like, I'm going to go out and do something. <laughs> and, and, and then I'm like, oh my God, 10 years later, Okay, Am so still... a couple of specifics. <laughs> Build a wall. What what is? It's absurd, and this and it's you know more disconnection from our okay. reality, and the fact that you know we're in the southern United States that used to be Mexico, and so like there's all this like, let's right. get real with. Okay, build a wall. <laughs> what about uh, what else do I hear? Say amnesty. Amnesty. You hear anchor. Help me understand what amnesty is, and amnesty is good or bad. What are we? Where are we on amnesty? I mean amnesty. I don't even think it's a big deal. Amnesty is is a concept, and I think what's what's happening is it's being characterized as a terrible thing. Um, but the way that I think amnesty is used in in the right, right, is to um, to say that we're going to grant uh, amnesty, grant migration status, right, immigration status to millions of people. There people are currently are eleven million undocumented people. Yeah, and and to me, that's that is an affront to humanity. People are being created as undocumented people aren't just like oh they're they, yeah. you know what i mean they're, they're like that's a that's a thing that man has created in order to have people who are highly exploitable in order to have um goods that are you know less than you should ever be paying or you know or services that you know like there's just so much there's so much it's it's a way to ha- and i don't ever like to conflate um, slavery, but there's there's just such a it reeks of injustice, right? Okay. The fact that there can be an undocumented class of people, and it's got it. It's going to stay that way because there are millions of us who also benefit from people being undocumented. Yes. So, okay. So for those of you on the front lines, what would a like a politician? What would a policy when they were asked, "What's your stance on immigration?" What would the policy be that you and all of those of you on the front lines would go okay now they now that's the way forward so you know what, I mean? what yeah. would they what would they say that you'd say okay now they they understand the actual issues they understand respect for the dignity of human being they understand mm-hmm. how our world works right so i think what what's what's sad to me is that we oftentimes hear policies and um, other types of things being being framed as though there's we're like in this scarce like there's this lie of scarcity right when in reality I, I you know maybe it's also from my faith tradition there is abundance like, yes. there is enough for all of this and we are also made in the image of the creator and so if there was we can create whatever we okay need. so so there's a, so, it's almost like an energetic thing that you pick up of ah there isn't gonna be enough America for all of us. Exactly. If you let them have a little piece of America, then there's not going to be an America left over. So there's that piece of it. Okay. But there's also the types of laws and policies that will allow for, for, uh, for foreign trade policies that are going to leave another country, right? Like Mexico in, in this case. 
um, with a population that can't actually survive because of that policy, mm-hmm. right? And so my thing is like, it's not even just about what's happening in the US. We also need to examine the ways in which our foreign trade policies are displacing our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world or even exploiting them, right? So I think about folks in different parts of Asia and the, you know, the factories, we know about the conditions there. We, we all know about the conditions there. We all know why our clothes, you know, the tags on our clothes say, like, made in Malaysia, made in, you know, we, we know why, right? And the conditions that are happening um, and the types of abuses that are happening in places like that. And so my thing is, like, we need to have whatever immigration policy actually address the root causes, right? The root causes of migration in the first place because many people actually would like to stay at home, would like to be, you know, wherever wherever they're at. They don't take it lightly that they have to hop in a boat like we're seeing right now, right? Folks are, they have to get in boats and they're, you know, going across the Mediterranean Sea. Some people are, are oh, drowning. Yeah, okay. People are having to trek across the U.S. Mexico that like nobody wants to do that. Like people don't wake up thinking like oh. It's, it I want to risk like, my life and my kids and people don't just I, if I could stay here on this piece of land. Okay, so your thing is way before you get to a border, you have to go to a much larger policy of how this tribe interacts with other tribes exactly. in the world. Got exactly. it. So that. And then if it so happens that people are in your territory, in your land, right? Right, folks in the US, you don't need to criminalize their existence, right? People have the right to migrate, right? According to the UN Declaration of Human Rights, they, they do have the right to migrate. They do have a, a right to seek a job or a living that's dignified and provide for their family. Anybody, you know, any rational person, right, would say like, yeah, like that's what you do. <laughs> like, you know, this is, this is it. Yes. So the criminalization of people's existence, their desire to make a living should not happen. Like, so yep. like kind of second piece of that policy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well said. <laughs> you know, and, and then, and then beyond that is like, let's just figure it out. Like, I feel like those are the, those are the, to me are the main things. Like people are being exploited. People are being criminalized. People are being displaced. And so it's not only that people are being displaced abroad, people even within the U.S. are being displaced. And so I think about the ways in which labor unions are also under attack. Labor unions have done so much for black people, I know African-Americans and, and other communities who've been marginalized in the workplace, allow them to organize for a dignified wage, for benefits, for you know fair, decent work hours, all of those sorts of things. And those are being undermined in order to have highly exploitable workers part of the workforce. And so those types of things are, yeah. are playing out where it's people are being um, ill-served here, people are being ill-served abroad. You know, what can we do in order to, to transform that dynamic more fundamentally and not just a Band-Aid on it? I think a lot of times right. we hear like little Band-Aid solutions. That sound to you like a band like that isn't getting at it. That's just surface. That's just gloss. Yeah. Now, what... Um, what would you like for all my people listening to the Robcast? What do people need? What do people need to know about how it really is? How do you change things? Like yeah. with your work, like what is the thing that you're like? If people just knew this, mm-hmm. we could really change things. I think if people really knew that it's not just theoretical, it's not just in the mind, but it's going to take very literal action. People, you know, in the streets, people calling their elected officials, people engaged in the real world and not just, you know, giving ping lip service. 
um, what we're seeing is actually this really beautiful multiracial movement for Black Lives. We've seen many people come alongside our communities and rise up in action with us and take some really amazing acts of um, solidarity. And so I think that, at the end of the day, is what is going to cut it. it. We're not going to just um, see it, you know, people write a post on their Facebook or Twitter. Folks have to get involved in the movement, and they can do that by, you know, going to our website. They can do that by plugging in with a chapter. Websites locally. Black Lives Matter. Blacklivesmatter.com. Okay. And then there's um, chapters around the country. Chapters around the country. There are a lot of other really great um, allied organizations that are out there that are doing some really courageous kind of anti-racist work within their own communities, figuring out how to have these types of conversations at the dinner table, um, figuring out who they can talk to and leveraging their own resources, leveraging their own relationships and so on in order to transform um, the nation. And so I think ultimately it's it's in action that we're going yes. to Yes. Okay. Let's say they say, Opal, we'd like you to come to talk to all the police officers of America. <laughs> <laughs> And they say, we've got all the police officers of America, and they're just waiting for you to tell them what's going down. Yeah. <laughs> How do we, because there's, a, there's this beautiful thing we have called the rule of law. We have this, like, like somebody robs your house, you can, like, call 911 and get help. Mm-hmm. So when people are like, oh, get rid of the police, I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. But then there's this the images are like seared in your mind of, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Yeah. How do you, how do you like, what is the way forward with the, Afri- with the black community and with police, with white community and police? You know what I mean? How, how does yeah. that all, because it just doesn't seem like it's going away. Right. So there's, there's, there's so much to it. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, I think, you know, kind of first things first, I, I just want to sh- share that there's a lot of, racism that's that's unconscious right like mm-hmm. a lot most of the time it's actually like what what's known as impl- implicit bias so unconscious yes. dehumanization of people and there are like countless studies that basically demonstrate the ways in which white people view black people oftentimes they view their pain and they don't have any empathy for their pain um they view children as much older than they are there's just a lot of um a lot of data out there and a lot of anecdotes obviously and, and to me, my concern is, like, th- there's that that's playing out, but that also informs our systems, that informs our policies, and that informs the ways in which our society at large is working, right, and operating. And so what we are seeing today, and this disproportionate and, and very, like, acute ways in which the Black community is being criminalized and then being profiled you know, being killed, we're seeing that, and it's really the result of decades of theories and, and practices. And so I, 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 I always encourage people to, like, dig a little bit deeper. Like, let's, let's like, look at the root, right? Let's look at the yep. root. And I think back to the 80s and the 90s, and um, in that period, there was this kind of neoconservative push um, around policing, around um, pushing back also against some of the gains that were made by the civil rights movement. And there was a move to do a couple of things. You, you likely have heard about the war on drugs. You've likely heard about it, you know, all of these things. Around that same period, there was um, the development of a theory called broken windows, which in essence said that if there's a broken window in a neighborhood or if there's some kind of 
low level kind of active disorder, quote unquote disorder, you know, like jaywalking, like dancing on the subway, like sleeping on a park bench, you need to stop that because it might lead to some more violent crime. And honestly, what that led to was more police presence in low-income communities, which were often poor folks, right? Poor um, black folks, brown folks, and so on, right? And this happens at the same time that there's a gutting of the public safety net. So resources that would go to support mm-hmm. those marginalized communities that were reeling from decades and generations of, of racism and, and being displaced in other ways. And so we have this simultaneous like gutting of supports as well as the criminalization of poverty. And then you have hyper-policing, so more police presence in these communities. And so we're seeing this play out in neighborhoods all across the country. This is what's Mm. leading to these increased altercations that sometimes end up with brutality and sometimes, you know, the worst case with with these deaths. Um, And so you have somebody like Eric Garner who's selling a cigarette. Cigarette, right? Cigarette, and he's being jumped on by you know various cops in his community and it's this was a result of the same broken windows theory got it okay so when there's like three or four police officers and one guy selling a cigarette and you're like it seems just like overkill literally Literally. you're saying wait 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 when you see that video clip and the next one that we're gonna see and you're like that just seems crazy you're like you have to go back 20 years and realize that is simply the buildup of a whole sort of Runaway train. Okay. Right. And and instead of and to me it's like yeah I don't necessarily want to have conversations with with police officers I'm not, I'm not interested in that I'm interested in like what are the values of our are we going to invest in criminalization of people or are we going to invest in communities are we going to invest in more teachers and more social workers and more mental health professionals because what we're also hearing is and what we're seeing is that there are a lot of times where these incidents are actually with people who have a mental health breakdown they're having a crisis a police officer is sent in they're not the actual person who should be dealing with this they're not a mental health professional they don't they don't know all I mean, those no wonder things. no wonder things and fall things apart fall yeah apart. got it and then and then you see you know what we're seeing and so our whole thing is like let's really examine um where our investments lie like quite literally where are our investments and what are solutions that really emerge from the community because the community isn't necessarily calling for more police officers to deal with the solution or to deal with the the problems they're calling for more support in their low-income communities right they want jobs they want help and, and support when they're having a mental health crisis like anybody else wants um, and why is the first kind of quote unquote line of defense a cop? Like, yeah, that's, that's got it, got it, got thing. it. Yeah. So inspiring, so inspiring. You have such joy for being on the front lines, and I keep meeting people over the years. The people on the front lines are often to me, they're often people just overflowing with joy. Yeah. They often go hand in hand. When you think these would be the most sort of cynical and. But you just have this sort of life spilling out from you. It's fantastic. Thank you. Well, I mean, I I have such a privilege, I think, in in terms of like being able to talk and meet with different people and see the little things that they're doing in their communities. And that, to me, keeps me so inspired and keeps me going. And, you know, I've been getting a lot of like hate mail. And I spoke at a college the other day. It was the first time I had 
security with me because they had had some threats and, and so on. But I was just so inspired because that room, the auditorium was flowing, overflowing. Like they had to turn people away. People were in the aisles. Like people were like standing. And they on resonated the, with they what resonated. you were saying. They like standing ovation. It was like amazing. And so I'm like, okay, you know, it's, it's all good. We're doing the right thing. People, people get it. People from all different walks of life, they, they get it. People of conscience are quite literally everywhere. I did a, I did a speaking tour in, in Europe a few months ago, and folks even there were like, we're, we're with you. We're, we're here in solidarity. I met the president of Venezuela the other day, and he's like, we're here. Call I us met if you need the us. president of Venezuela the other day. It was wild. That's a solid line right there, it was, by the way. <laughs> it was wild. I feel like I'm name dropping now. But, but honestly, and the prime minister of St. Vincent, they were all here for the UN uh, General Assembly, and they were like, we, we want to meet with your folks. We see what's going on. Don't think that you're forgotten. Oh, like we're, we're here, so great. You know, and it's it's beautiful. So people are witnessing and, and they're there with us. Death threats and standing ovations. That back, you're you're back. living. That's living. Right there. That's living. Well, thank you so much. I really you so inspire me and coming over, hanging out at the kitchen table, telling me a bit about it. I hope all my people uh, we're as inspired as I was. So thank you. I appreciate Keep you. Keep going. We are cheering you on. Ah, thanks. And you're joining in. Well. So it's not just cheering me on. This is, this is part of the work. Good. Yeah. Good, good. Yeah. Grace and peace, everybody. Thank you, Wobble.